all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. Good morning from MPB Think Radio. This is Southern Riveting Healthy and Fit, the show all about finding and maintaining a healthy lifestyle. I'm Dr. Debbie Miner, Professor and Vice Chair of Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. I'm thrilled today to have with us Dr. Jason Parham. We're following up on our infectious disease theme after talking about Zika virus last week, and we're going to be talking about acute respiratory infections today. Do you need an antibiotic? Do you not? When do you need to see a doctor? So please give us a call. We'd love to hear from you, your questions your comments, uh, any issues that you might have by dialing 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or send us an email at healthy at mpbonline.org. This is Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit from MPB Think Radio. We'll be back with you right after the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lori London. The U.S. military has conducted airstrikes today in the Libyan city of Sirte at the request of the U.N.-backed Libyan government. In a statement, the Pentagon says President Obama authorized the strikes targeting Islamic State following a recommendation by Defense Secretary Ash Carter and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff General Joseph Dunford. The first full week of the general election is filled with controversy over Donald Trump's continued criticism of Kaiser Khan, the father of a Muslim U.S. Army captain who was killed in 2004 by a suicide bomber in Iraq. Khan gave an emotional tribute last week at the Democratic National Convention that was also very critical of Trump. Even so, NPR's Tamara Keith tells us Trump's reaction is unprecedented. The reaction to Donald Trump's comments on the Khan family was swift, including from many prominent Republicans, because you have a presidential candidate going after a gold star family. That just doesn't happen in American politics. Khan gave an emotional tribute last week at the convention. Khan's son earned a bronze star and a purple heart. Meanwhile, in Nebraska today, billionaire Warren Buffett will be introducing Hillary Clinton at a campaign event in Omaha. The University of Texas is dedicating a granite memorial today to the 16 victims of Charles Whitman, the man who carried out a mass shooting on campus exactly 50 years ago. NPR's John Burnett reports today is also the first day that it's legal to carry concealed handguns at university buildings in Texas. In 1966, an engineering student and former Marine named Charles Whitman climbed to the observation deck of the clock tower and opened fire. The state capitol was a sleepy college town when the news broke, as heard here on CBS. One of history's worst mass murders occurred here in Austin today. By official count tonight, 49 persons were hit by gunfire. This was the deadliest university shooting until Virginia Tech in 2007, when a college senior killed 32 people. Second Amendment advocates pushed a controversial law through the Texas State House that allows pistols in classrooms, presumably to stop campus shooters. The law takes effect today. 
though most students and university faculty bitterly oppose it, saying more guns on campus will not make it safer. John Burnett, NPR News, Austin. Ahead of the second anniversary of the fatal police shooting of an unarmed black teen in Ferguson, Missouri, a coalition of more than 60 organizations affiliated with the Black Lives Matter movement is releasing an agenda which calls for police and criminal justice reforms. It outlines six demands and offers 40 recommendations how to address them. This is NPR. The pilot of a hot air balloon that crashed in Texas over the weekend had trouble with the law. A Missouri police officer says the pilot was arrested for driving while intoxicated in 2000, and the St. Louis Post-Dispatch reported in 2008 that the Better Business Bureau had warned customers about doing business with him. Sixteen people were killed after the balloon is believed to have hit power lines. Jason Bourne still has it, even after nearly 10-year hiatus. NPR's Trina Williams reports the newest Jason Bourne movie opens with an estimated $60 million at U.S. and Canadian theaters. Matt Damon returns as the CIA spy with a conscience who has lost his memory. In this fifth installment, Jason Bourne does remember who he is as he uncovers truths about his past, but some things still aren't clear. I remember. I remember everything. Remembering everything doesn't mean you know everything. Tell me. The Bourne opening is the second biggest in the franchise after 2007's Bourne Ultimatum. Last weekend's champ Star Trek Beyond is pushed down a spot to second place. Bad Moms enters the chart at number three. The Secret Life of Pets drops to fourth place and Lights Out falls to number five. Trina Williams, NPR News. In the aftermath of a shooting massacre that left 49 people dead, the owners of the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, Florida, will reopen as a memorial. The owners set up the One Pulse Foundation following the attack to help provide financial assistance to the victims and create a permanent memorial. This is NPR. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Visiting Angels, professional caregivers assisting adults in bathing, dressing, meals, and lighthouse work nationwide. Visiting Angels, America's choice in senior home care. Office locations are at visitingangels.com. Your favorite MPB Think Radio shows are now available on your favorite podcast app. So open that app and subscribe to any local program you love, like Everyday Tech. Android does have the most delicious operating system. I find it's Jelly Bean. The Gestalt Gardener. What's up? What you got going on? And of course, MPB's Season Pass with myself, Sam Wells, and Jay White. That's my guys, man. So what are you waiting for? Go search and subscribe today. Catch up on past episodes and hear any of the MPB programs you've missed on the MPB Public Radio app. Available on iTunes and Google Play. Listen live to MPB Think Radio and MPB Music Radio. Search MPB Public Radio. This is Mississippi Public Broadcasting. I'm Terry Gross. Listen to Fresh Air weekdays at 3 on MPB Think Radio. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can always email your comments and questions to healthy at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting.
morning from MPB Think Radio. This is Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. I'm Debbie Miner from the University of Mississippi Medical Center, and I'm thrilled today to have with me Dr. Jason Parham from our Infectious Disease Division with the Department of Medicine at the University, and then as well, Lauren Lyles, our pharmacy expert that's with us again today. So we are glad to be here and glad it's such a beautiful day, even though I heard the rain's coming in. And today we're going to be talking about respiratory infections. It's hard to know. I was just thinking, well, let's see, I've got a husband at home that's had a cold for about a week. Get tired of listening to him. I've got a father-in-law that's in the hospital right now with pneumonia. And then I've got a daughter in D.C. that keeps calling me back and saying, Mama, I'm dying from my cold. So you get those respiratory inf- infections, and used to we think, oh, everybody needs antibiotic. And now the guidelines have changed, and some new ones have been released recently. So we're going to explore some of those issues. So, Dr. Parham, welcome today. Glad to have you with us. Tell us a little bit about your background and and your experiences. Thank you, Debbie. I'm glad to be here. Um, I'm a member of the Division of Infectious Diseases at University of Mississippi Medical Center and trained at University of Mississippi Medical Center in both internal medicine and in infectious diseases. Uh, I currently uh, run the antimicrobial stewardship program at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. So that has to do with antibiotics? Exactly. So it's a program that is really a group of processes and policies put in place to try to improve antibiotic use across the institution. Sometimes that means stopping antibiotics that aren't necessary or educating physicians on how they might better use different antibiotics. But all of it is designed to try to improve the quality of care in our patients and in the institution as a whole. Well, that's why I thought you were the perfect person to invite to have with us today because the American College of Physicians and the Centers for Disease Control have recently issued, I'll call it an update maybe, or a recommendation about exercising good judgment when prescribing antibiotics for respiratory tract infections and and basically when you should and when you should and to stop overusing antibiotics because sometimes that's a hard call. That's a hard call about how do you know? Do you really need an antibiotic? Because I think, goodness, over the years, I think people began to think that every time you have a call for a sniffle, you needed a (laughs) Z-Pack. Exactly, yes. And we write somewhere around 45 million prescriptions for azithromycin in the U.S. every year, uh, and that number is uh, fairly stable. But the reality is is that antibiotics have been a godsend and have been miracle drug uh, that have changed the way that people have uh, been treated over the last uh, 80 years or so. Uh, But the unfortunate thing is that most of our I would say 30 to 50% across the board, and greater than that in the outpatient setting of our antibiotic use is inappropriate, which means that we use them at times when it's not necessary. Uh, That can be treating with the wrong antibiotic or treating for too long or can be treating for things that aren't actual bacterial infections. And antibiotics don't work for viruses. Uh, They don't shorten the duration of symptoms. Uh, They don't make the patient get better any faster. They don't prevent infection afterwards. Uh, and there are serious side effects that happen when we take antibiotics. Uh, you know, one in five, uh, one in five prescriptions can lead to ac- adverse event uh, that can be as simple as an upset stomach, but can also be as serious as an overgrowth of a bad type of bacteria or an, a bad allergic reaction. Uh, and because of that antimicrobial misuse, we're trying to 
intervene where we can to try to make sure people are using antibiotics appropriately in order that we can preserve those antibiotics, stop those side effects that happen, and prevent resistance from spreading in our bacterial populations. Well, today we're talking about respiratory tract infections and when you treat and when you don't treat. So give us a call. We'd love to hear from you with any of your comments or questions at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two. Seven four six four. So I'm here today with Dr. Jason Parham from Infectious Disease Division at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. So, Dr. Parham, what are what are the common types of acute respiratory infections? You mentioned uh, that not all of them are bacterial; that a lot of them are viral. Uh, so, what are the common types, and ha- are there different ways that they present? Sure. So you can have a common cold, which is generally due to a viral infection. They can have uh, sneezing, cough, headache, low-grade fever. They can last a couple of weeks. You can have sinus infections or rhinosinusitis, where you can have nasal congestion, facial pain, fever, cough, pharyngitis or a sore throat, uh, often when swallowing, last about a week or so. And you can have those uh, symptoms in addition to that, including uh, fever and uh, other respiratory tract symptoms. Then there are respiratory infections uh, that we could have uh, often considered uh, as possibly needing antibiotics, including bronchitis. Uh, acute bronchitis, however, for the most part, is caused by viruses, just like the rest of the things we've just been talking about. And that's part of the reason acute respiratory tract infections are an interesting area to talk about. The majority of the infections are caused by, by viral, uh, viral pathogens, and antibiotics generally don't have an effect on them. Well, is there any way for, uh, or how how would you advise just the general person walking around? Um, how do they know when they need to contact a doctor, or when when this is serious? When it's when it's serious, I, I always think, and this could be totally wrong, but if something comes on real, just acutely, so a quick onset, that it's more likely a virus than a bacterial infection. I don't know if there's any truth to that or not. Um, I'm. I'm not sure across the board if that would necessarily be the case, but uh, infections uh, generally that cause more severe symptoms with higher fevers, uh, with symptoms that last for a longer duration of time, are ones that we're more concerned with up front. Um, Certainly, it depends on whether you're a generally healthy uh, person or a healthy child, uh, and there are more vulnerable areas of the population, including infants, particularly under three months of age, or the elderly, where uh, some of the symptoms that a six-year-old would have or an 18-year-old or a 50-year-old would have that we wouldn't be as worried about, uh, we get more worried about. And that includes fever, uh, productive cough, uh, shortness of breath, change in mental status, so the person seems to be a little bit confused or breathing faster than they're used to. Uh, So those are some of the things that we watch for uh, that we get worried about a little bit. And certainly, you know, If there's any doubt, you can always see a physician and let them help you sort these things out. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they need an antibiotic, but they might need to be evaluated by a physician. Yeah, and look at at their lab work and some of those other things and just a physical exam. Doing a physical exam Mm -hmm. on them, looking to see if they're running fever, looking to see how fast they're breathing, if they have good oxygen saturation in their blood, all of which can be done fairly uh, non-invasively in a clinic setting. Um, but those things are important in telling whether a patient really 
has an infection that needs to be addressed with antibiotics or might need to be addressed in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Well, so just for the general, uh, you've got the runny nose, you've got a little bit of that uh, cough going on, you've got a little bit of sore throat. What what do you suggest? Do, the, do these over-the-counter things make a difference? So antihistamines, decongestants, I mean, I think. I'd usually tell my husband, well, it might make you feel a little bit better, but it's not going yeah. <laughs> to change and, the course, really. But exactly. For most and, people, and some of that symptomatic, people, yeah, yeah, so symptomatic. Some of that symptomatic mm-hmm. therapy uh, it can be helpful in li- limited situations, but fluids, rest, uh, those are things that really end up working better in most cases. Uh, certainly, and there are certain populations you have to be careful with the use of over-the-counter medications, including small children, uh, Things like decongestants can be a problem in those age groups. Uh, decongestants can be a problem in adults that have mm-hmm. certain health issues. Same thing for antihistamines. Antihistamines can lead to uh, worsening confusion in the elderly, and that can be a pob- problem. Uh, but the benefits that you get for the over-the-counter treatments are fairly limited. So you might have a mild improvement in symptoms, but they generally don't change the overall course of the infection. Well, when you think about resistance, you mentioned that earlier, antibiotic resistance. And to reorient our audience, we're talking about respiratory tract infections today. And how do you know when you need to see a doctor or just kind of let that cold run its course? And the new recommendations from the American College of Physicians and the Centers for Disease Control about um, avoiding exercising good judgment and avoiding the overuse of antibiotics. Uh, so you mentioned resistance. So when you think about resistance, is that like me as an individual, or is that a group of people that would develop a resistance? If I've never taken an antibiotic before, would I? Would there be potential that that I could have, or I would be resistant or to the benefits of it in my body? Yeah, if I hadn't, if I hadn't been exposed to to different antibiotics and things, certainly you're at an increased risk if you yourself have been been exposed to antibiotics because the bacteria that are normally living are on your body not necessarily causing infection, can develop resistance after exposure uh, to antibiotics that are used for other things. But you can also pick up resistant antibiotics from other people, from other folks in the community. So use in antibiotics in one patient does affect how those antibiotics may potentially work in another patient. Uh, It's one of the rare instances when we use medications where the use in one patient uh, down the road can hurt its efficacy in further patients. I think I was having that conversation with, with my daughter this weekend. She said, well, remember years and years and years ago, this doctor gave me a Z-Pack, so I think that would work just the same for me now. I'm like, well, sweetie, there's increased resistance to that. But I hadn't had one in years and years and years. Yeah, so the, well, so the bacteria have do become resistant over time to antibiotics, and antibiotics that worked perfectly well in the 1940s and 50s uh, don't always work that well now. Uh, that doesn't mean that newer is always better, but it is something that we have to consider uh, and that our doctors and healthcare providers are well aware of, and they should take that into consideration when they do prescribe antibiotics. Uh, the threat due to resistance is uh, not a new thing. It's been in, pr- in place ever since the 1940s when penicillin use became widespread. They immediately started seeing antimicrobial resistance pop up, and the discoverer of penicillin started writing editorials in the Journal of American Medical Association almost right away saying, please be careful how you're using the antibiotics we have or we're going to lose them. And that really is the case. Uh, inappropriate use does lead to us losing the efficacy, efficacy of those classes. Uh, we have about 2 million 
uh, antimicrobial resistant infections a year with about 23,000 deaths a year in the U.S. due to those infections. And it's this overuse and misuse of antibiotics that is guiding uh, the development of resistance. Well, and for a lot of the vaccines, or for a lot of the the diseases that we think about now, uh, we do have vaccines available that help prevent some of those things. That's right. And this is definitely a case where prevention is the key for these infections. I'm not... Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I wasn't hearing anything there. I wasn't sure if we were going through live or not. But I do hear our music now, so that means it's time for a quick break. This is Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, and we'll be back with you right after this quick break. Support for MPB comes from Kyle Wynn & Associates, an elder law firm with offices in Ridgeland, Diamond Head, and Hernando, assisting clients throughout the state with estate planning, including trusts, avoidance of probate, and nursing home asset protection. Details at kyle-wynn.com. Fifty years ago, a sniper went to the top of the clock tower at the University of Texas and opened fire on the people below. She was obviously wounded. The people around her looked dead. And the tower kept chiming every 15 minutes. And I would think... Fifteen more minutes they've been out there. Fifteen more minutes. Survivors remember August 1st, 1966, later, on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 4 on NPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Dr. Susan Buttress. Join me each Tuesday for Relatively Speaking on MPB Think Radio. Each week we explore issues that relate to you and your family, from mental obstacles to family interaction, from depression to handling life's disruptions, discovering things that make you happy, or how to get around things keeping you from your happiness. I want to hear what's going on in your life. Relatively Speaking, part of the Daily Southern Remedy series, tomorrow morning at 11 on MPB Think Radio. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can always email your comments and questions to healthy at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Good morning from MPB Think Radio. This is Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. I'm Debbie Miner, and I'm here today with Dr. Jason Parham and Lauren Liles, and we're talking about respiratory tract infections. Uh, there have been new guidelines that urge, uh, urge, I guess, less prescribing of antibiotics and, and more uh, good judgment put into the use of antibiotics issued by the American College of Physicians and the CDC, Centers for Disease Control. So we're just reviewing some of the, the differences between What's a what's a bacterial infection? What's a viral infection? And how do you know when you seek care? So, Dr. Parham, what are some of the specific advice recommendations from the new set of guidelines? Okay, a couple of things here. When you're looking at uh, diagnosis of 
acute respiratory tract infection uh, and trying to differentiate between bronchitis and pneumonia, they do make recommendations to clinicians that they really should not pursue testing or start antibiotic therapy in patients unless you suspect that they have pneumonia. And generally that follows that during an exam, the physician has found uh, changes on the uh, when he's using his stethoscope and suspects that there is a pneumonia and then usually pursues a chest X-ray. So barring uh, the presence of pneumonia, they should not use antibiotics in those cases. Now, in reference to pharyngitis uh, or sore throats, uh, only one in five of those infections uh, end up being caused by strep. The majority of them are still caused by viruses or bacteria that don't need to be treated. So they recommend that you, in the appropriate age range, use rapid strep screening to determine whether or not someone has streptococcal pharyngitis, and then if they do, treat them in that case. Now, for acute rhinosinusitis, uh, what we consider sinus infections. It's for patients that have persistent symptoms for more than 10 days, or they have the onset of severe symptoms and signs such as a high fever, purulent nasal discharge, or facial pain that's lasted for at least three consecutive days, or they've had the onset of worsening symptoms following a typical viral illness that lasted for five days that was initially showing signs of improvement but then the patient gets dramatically worse, what they refer to as double sickening. So originally they felt like their sinus infection was getting better, and then dramatically things turned for the worse. And then in reference to the common cold, they just come out and say, the common cold is not something we should uh, treat with antibiotics because the common cold is not caused by a bacterial infection. Hmm. So basically, if you've had something that seemed to have been getting better and all of a sudden then takes a turn for the worse, or it's lasted for over 10 days? Yes, that's the, that's that's the general, general recommendations and uh, recommendations for rhinosinusitis. And that's a pretty decent rule for uh, infections uh, that lead to cough or other symptoms. Uh, if you have those symptoms for 10 to 14 days, that's really where you should start beginning uh, being a little more concerned and might need to be checked out by your physician or your health care provider. Okay, so 10 to 14 days in general. So are there are there certain types of when uh, fever, fever, for example, it, it, does fever, fever doesn't always indicate that even you need to be seen necessarily? That's true. You can run uh, fever even with a viral infection, uh, but it's something that we need that parents should be checking their children that are sick with a thermometer and they should be checking themselves when they're sick with a thermometer and if they're running regular high fevers 100.5 101 uh, then that's something to be concerned about in small children uh, any fever Mm -hmm. is concerning uh, particularly a fever over 100.5 or greater and you need to at least talk to the child's pediatrician uh, particularly in children that are under the age of a year well you think about little kids and the elderly Yes, exactly. (laughs) It can go downhill quick. (laughs) It can go downhill quick because, uh, you know, as we age, our immunity can wane over time. Uh, And then for small children, their immune systems aren't fully developed yet. Uh, They've just started getting their vaccinations. They do have some antibodies usually from the mom, but uh, they're not uh, completely whole Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of their defenses against infection. So. Little things that might not be a problem can turn into a big problem with small children. Mm. And then we have all those uh, things like that in the elderly, too. It's just at the other end of the spectrum. 
Exactly. Uh, and but, the, go ahead. And those uh, respiratory infections like pneumonia in the elderly can present in different ways. So uh, when uh, elderly um, when elderly people get pneumonia, they sometimes show different symptoms than you or I would. Uh, they can uh, often not demonstrate as high a fever or typical symptoms of cough, but the main thing that you might see is a fast breathing rate or uh, that they might get confused and less alert, not eating or drinking as much. So those are some warning signs in the elderly that we tell folks to be mm. cognizant of. So today we're talking about respiratory infections and the new guidelines that give uh, give specific uh, value-type recommendations to prescribing antibiotics for differences between viruses and bacterial infections and these common colds and things like that. Here with today with Dr. Jason Parham and Lauren Lyles. And uh, let's go to our caller on the line, Kristen in Jackson. Good morning. Good morning. How are y'all? Fine. How are you? I'm good. Well, I was just driving around town and I turned on your radio show and I have a question. I have a child who has multiple kind of health conditions and she's about to start school. And I heard that there may be some new legislation that would allow me to not have to vaccinate her. And I kind of wanted some of your recommendations or thoughts on that. Well, Kristen, that's actually a good question. So let me ask you uh, one thing first, just as a little background. Um, so has your child gotten their earlier vaccines, all the recommended vaccines? Kind of just not giving them to her because I didn't really, I wasn't comfortable with the vaccines. Okay, okay. Well, uh, yeah, now that I know, and Dr. Parham can comment on this. I know we've had some recent um, legislation introduced about uh, the exemption for vaccinations. So, so our state does allow a medical exemption for vaccinations, just like all states before school. Uh, but our our we've had a little bit. Our state has been very, I'll say. Um, uh, well, I don't know what the right word we use is, but our health department has has been very careful and uh, consistent with our current legislation about about how that's handled, and hence we do have among the highest school vaccination rates in the nation. So, Dr. Parham, you want to comment about that? Um, yes, I I think uh, from a standpoint for for parents, the health department. Uh, it is in charge of trying to maintain the safety of the public. Um, and vaccinations, uh, for people who are seeking an exemption from vaccinations, there actually is currently a process through the health department where you can have a Mississippi uh, licensed provider uh, request an exemption for a child that has a medical problem that might uh, require a delay in, in vaccination or avoidance of a particular vaccine. Uh, so the exemption process is already in place in Mississippi. I think uh, what the caller may be referring to is uh, a, a recent bill that has been uh, in the legislature was been looked at to allow parents to get an exemption from any provider uh, in the United States uh, to be able to avoid uh, getting their child vaccinated. I would just say as a, as a, a parent of two, I, I certainly am a, a firm believer in, in vaccination and, uh, and did vaccinate my kids with the schedule, uh, and they've been getting the additional recommended vaccines, including uh, the influenza vaccine, 
uh, from the time they were small children. And we uh, have been big proponents of, of vaccinating our children, and we do uh, think that it helps our children and, and, and helps other children in the system. But I do understand that, that some people have reservations uh, about uh, vaccinating their kids. But uh, I, I do think there are systems in place currently to try to address those questions. And I think those things are probably best addressed between the, the parent and uh, their health care provider for their child, their pediatrician. And we, and we do, like you said, we do have a system in this state right now that is uh, – uh, where children, because with a medical exemption, so sure. so there are true cases. I mean, and I'm, Chris, I'm not sure about your child, but there are cases where maybe particular vaccines should not be given. Maybe some should and some shouldn't, and that we have that in our state right now. So we have we have a very, I would say, a very good system of review for that right now, and I think. I, Probably maybe something about the uh, this bill that was introduced has to do with it will allow, like you said, uh, from outside the state. And and so it would kind of fall maybe outside the purview of the health department, which our health department does a great job with that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we have one of the best best situations in the nation as far as review and, yeah, and so appropriate we have, use. We have some of the highest rates of vaccination among our school children, and it's it's definitely one of the – uh, great programs that the Mississippi Department of Health runs uh, with, with good results. Um, but, but yes, I think the, the bill is, uh, appears to be uh, seeking to introduce the possibility of people getting an exemption from outside the state that aren't necessarily the child's actual health care provider. Um, so obviously we have, uh, I personally would have some con- concerns when you're uh, Potentially asking for an exemption for a patient that you don't actually know—that's that's kind of a no-no in general for us as healthcare providers. We like to to know the patients we're writing prescriptions for and that we're giving advice to. So we try to be as careful as we can uh, and understand that we may not know the whole picture if we haven't uh, seen the patient ourselves. And, and usually, if a child has those type of issues, they are engaged with. Well, I mean, they're pretty much all engaged with the healthcare provider or. Uh, you wouldn't even know about it. Exactly. Mm. Well, thank you for calling, Kristen. I hope that answers your question. I um, encourage you to to read up about that bill and contact your legislature, uh, legislator if you, if you uh, have further questions. So we're going to take another quick break. This is Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. Today we're talking about respiratory infections. So give us a call. We return 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. We'll be back right after this break. Radio is your voice for Mississippi. If you or your community has an event coming up and you'd like help spreading the word, send us an email. You've got mail to PSA at mpbonline.org. Catch up on past episodes and hear any of the MPB programs you've missed on the MPB Public Radio app. Available on iTunes and Google Play. Listen live to MPB Think Radio and MPB Music Radio. Search MPB Public Radio. This is Mississippi Public Broadcasting. 
Your favorite MPB Think Radio shows are now available on your favorite podcast app. So open that app and subscribe to any local program you love, like Everyday Tech. Android does have the most delicious operating system, I find. Jelly, it's jelly bean. The Gestalt Gardener. What's up? What you got going on? And of course, MPB's Season Pass with myself, Sam Wells, and Jay White. That's my guys, man. So what are you waiting for? Go search and subscribe today. Hi, I'm Dr. Michelle Owens, host of Southern Remedy for Women, here to warn you about an upcoming epidemic of license plate envy. Yes, it's coming after you see someone driving around with a new MPB car tag. It's the latest way you can support Mississippi Public Broadcasting continue the mission of educating, informing, and entertaining Mississippians. This epidemic is easily remedied by visiting mpbonline.org slash car tag to pre-order yours today. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can always email your comments and questions to healthy at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Radio. This is Southern Remedy, Healthy and Fit. I'm Debbie Miner. I'm here today with Dr. Jason Parham from the University of Mississippi Medical Center, Infectious Disease Division, and Lauren Lawson. We're talking about respiratory tract infections. And uh, some of the recommendations for the new guidelines that were just released from the American College of Physicians and the Centers for Disease Control. And as Dr. Parham has pointed out, some of this is not really new. It's not really new information <laughs> that it's something that he has been passionate about for a long time but I, i'm just gonna say so why is this an issue i i know I, it seems like when this about three years ago that we were talking about ear infections and and we were looking about at guidelines and how we prescribe so many antibiotics for ear infections in this country and in europe they just don't do it they just don't do it. And and new guidelines came out about that and how you don't prescribe antibiotics for ear infections. And used to. I know when my kids were little. I, thank goodness they didn't have ear infections. But everybody around, every, as soon as your child started tugging at their ear, they got an antibiotic. That was just the way it was. And, you know, I know in the clinic I work in, and sometimes it's hard. It's hard when patients call and they tell you these things and how they feel and they need an antibiotic. You know, that conversation is, is hard to make them understand that, no, you really don't need an antibiotic. Let's just wait. Let's just wait. Let's just wait. So why is this still a problem? Is it, why is it? It's, is it that people don't know? Or is it it's just hard to change clinical practice? Or, or what are your thoughts behind, like you mentioned, the number of antibiotics prescribed each year and even our one of our favorites, Zithromax, and why we have so many millions and billions of prescription drugs that are and, and dollars spent on antibiotic use, and uh, why is it still why is it still an issue? Well, I I think there are, are, are numerous reasons, and some of it are some of those reasons are on the provider side. I think clinicians have gotten used to using 
uh, antibiotics, and some of them seem to uh, believe that there's not much harm in using antibiotics in some of these patients. Uh, and, you know, at times parents, uh, patients, uh, want antibiotics. They demand antibiotics. That's one of the reasons that they're going to the to see their health care provider. Uh, and there are studies that have looked at motivations for what works in that type of situation. Uh, but but I think um, there have been studies that have that have looked at what physicians can do to try to uh, offer reassurance to to patients and to parents. And there are studies that show that that patients really are looking for reassurance. They want to know what they've got. They want to know what kind of time frame the symptoms uh, of infection, how, what kind of time frame is this going to be, how long am I going to have this. And if it is just a viral infection, they're okay with that reassurance if there's a backup plan in place that lets them know, okay, what should I be looking for if this is not getting better? And then how do I treat the symptoms I'm currently having? Uh, is there something I can do to try to prevent this from happening next time? But those things take a longer time to relay to patients. It takes uh, skill and practice and time and uh, some and help. You're typically dealing with somebody that's that's scared. You're scared yeah. either for yourself or for your child. So there's you know there's been something of a culture change over the last uh, ten ten years or so at least. And I do feel like that both from the patient side and from the doctor side, you're starting to see patients and parents questioning whether or not they're. Uh, loved one needs antibiotics or whether antibiotics are really necessary. Do we have to use antibiotics in this case? Uh, and asking those good questions uh, is allowing uh, providers that may have been pressured at first or may have been using antibiotics more than they should have been using them uh, to really think again uh, before they prescribe, and I think that's helpful. The CDC has done a good job uh, with their Get Smart campaign. They have some nice literature at cdc.gov slash smart. Uh, they have great fact sheets available for all of these respiratory illnesses that uh, patients can read. They're fairly uh, si- uh, simple and easy to explain what's what's going on and what you should expect. They also have information for providers to help educate themselves on what are the best ways to treat these infections now and how they can uh, do better at reassuring patients when it's not something that antibiotics are going to work for. Well, so is that get smart that you mentioned? Is that something that's that's patient or consumer consumer information that you can go and look at? Exactly. So there's patient. Uh, it has multiple levels. So they have stuff that's available for healthcare providers, and they also have uh, things that are available for patients as well. Uh, nice little fact sheets for for both populations. And and we say this is this is really nothing new, but I, you know I can remember now. You know I've got a child that's um, like 31, and I can remember. Uh, thinking these things, so that would have been about 32 years ago, and <laughs> this may express some of my OCD-ness, but I went around and talked to pediatricians in Jackson to figure out the pediatrician that I wanted, and one of my, question was, well, one of my questions was, you're not going to give antibiotics to my child if he really doesn't need them, are you? And I, I settled on the pediatrician, Dr. Bill Payne. I tell you what, he was wonderful, and I can remember at one point my my little boy, he was probably about a year and a half old, and he was just, uh, or two maybe at this time, and just sick and throwing up and throwing, you know, just sick, and I called once, I'd taken him in, and and of course, Bill Payne was absolutely wonderful, and I remember calling back and, and saying, oh, thank you, I think he needs antibiotic, and, and he was like, now, Debbie, remember, this is a virus, and it's going to get better, and I know he wanted to say, calm down. <laughs> 
<laughs> but it was so true, and he reminded me of why I chose him as a pediatrician in the first place. <laughs> exactly, and we're and I hear that more often from uh, friends, family members. Uh, patients that they're concerned about antibiotic use and that they do worry that their physician may be writing too much in the way of antibiotics for their kids or for uh, their family members or for themselves. Uh, so I think that's a good thing for patients to know is that you're you're empowered to, to really ask some good questions to your provider whenever they're considering prescribing an antibiotic. And that includes asking them whether they really think this is something that has to have an antibiotic, uh, whether if they're using an antibiotic, is this the most specific antibiotic that we can use? Uh, not just the newest antibiotic or the broadest antibiotic or the one that you have samples for, but, but the antibiotic that will have the narrowest range of therapy to attack the one thing that may be causing the problem. Uh, and then to ask them ab- about what potential side effects may I have from the medication and what, what are some warning signs that I need to get back in touch with you. And I think those are all good things for for uh, patients and family members to to be empowered with, they need to be asking these questions to their healthcare providers so that they can get a better end result from their care. Well, and sometimes you mentioned the old versus the the brand new, and I know there's some, of course, in your area, very very specific new antibiotics, maybe IV antibiotics in the hospital for very resistant infections and all that. But in general, sometimes though, sometimes sometimes it's those older antibiotics that sometimes are really the most appropriate choice. Certainly, and uh, in, in many cases, the newer antibiotics are broader spectrum. That means they kill more uh, different types of bacteria at the same time. And it, and for a lot of these infections, you really need a more targeted antibiotic with a narrow spectrum of activity. And that does often include antibiotics that have been around for a long time. Uh, amoxicillin still a wonderful drug. We use way too much of it, uh, but sometimes it's the very uh, best drug available to treat an infection. Um, so certainly uh, it just depends on what the infection is and if it's appropriate. And then uh, family members, patients need to be empowered to talk to their healthcare providers about the possible pros and cons of using antibiotics. Well, you mentioned adverse effects too. So a lot of times that uh, that is truly a a safety concern because these these adverse effects a lot of times are not benign and can be as complicated to treat as the infection itself. Exactly, and and trips to the emergency department something like fifty thousand a year for kids that have been on antibiotics that are there for an adverse event. Uh, as they can be as mild as an upset stomach. Um, but they can be as bad as an anaphylactic reaction to the antibiotic where the child has difficulty breathing, uh, to infection or overgrowth of a bad type of bacteria like Clostridium difficile, which causes severe diarrhea and can lead to death. So there are serious complications that can happen with antibiotics. Uh, That's not to scare people, but to understand that we need to make sure that we're using them only when it's necessary. Well, this is is totally, totally off the wall now. I just thought about this. <laughs> so used to, we put Neosporin on everything. And now the recommendation is not use Neosporin. Why is that? Hmm. It could be for a lot of different reasons. <laughs> I, can, I can speak for my 
for my uh, eight-year-old daughter, Riley. She's allergic to the uh, components inside Neosporin, so it actually makes her wounds worse when we use Neosporin. Well, so it's the, so there's the bacitracin that you, so it must be it's the neomycin it's the neomycin. that more more commonly yeah. has the adverse reactions. So neomycin is most likely to have a you know a topical allergic type reaction, which can actually make. Uh, Applying it to a skin uh, wound actually make the wound itself look worse. So the more you put on it, the worse it looks. Uh, that's not true for everyone, but uh, but it but that is the case with things that include a neomycin component. Uh, so triple antibiotics that include neomycin, we generally uh, tell folks to keep an eye out for that. I, I generally avoid prescribing neomycin or advising neomycin for my patients. So should we get rid of the neosporin in our in our cabinets? Or if, it, or if we've used it in the past with no problems, it's still okay to put on a little... I think if you've used it in the past without problems, you can certainly put it on a, a, a skin infect, a small skin or soft tissue infection. <laughs> so the you know topical antibiotics, uh, fortunately, for the most part, aren't absorbed systemically. Uh, so we don't want to use them when we don't need them. But we do, uh, we do like to uh, be careful when we use them and, and watch out for those side effects. We need to take another quick break here, so we'll return uh, right after this break. This is Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. We'd love to hear from you with any questions you have about respiratory tract infections or treat or not treat. We're here today with Dr. Jason Parham, 1-877-MPB-RING, 1-877-672-7464. We'll return right after this break. MPB Public Media app is available now. Watch MPB TV, listen to MPB Think and Music Radio, and stay in the know with MPB News. Search for the MPB Public Media app in the App Store and Google Play stores today. Hi, I'm Dr. Susan Buttress. Join me each Tuesday for Relatively Speaking on MPB Think Radio. Each week we explore issues that relate to you and your family, from mental obstacles to family interaction, from depression to handling life's disruptions, discovering things that make you happy, or how to get around things keeping you from your happiness. I want to hear what's going on in your life. Relatively Speaking, part of the Daily Southern Remedy series, tomorrow morning at 11 on MPB Think Radio. The new MPB Public Media app is available now. Watch MPB TV, listen to MPB Think and Music Radio, and stay in the know with MPB News. Search for the MPB Public Media app in the App Store and Google Play stores today. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at 1 877 MPB Ring. That's 1 877 672 7464. You can always email your comments and questions to healthy at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. 
Good morning from MPB Think Radio. This is Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. And today we're talking about respiratory tract infections and how in most cases you don't need an antibiotic for respiratory tract infections. So we've got with us Dr. Jason Parham and Lauren Lyles, our pharmacy expert. And we've just reviewed some of the recommendations, these new recommendations that have come out from the American College of Physicians and the Centers for Disease Control. And Dr. Parham had mentioned the, the Centers for Disease Control, or CDC's Get Smart program. And so uh, this is a, a program for consumers and providers about antibiotic prescribing and when you need an antibiotic and when you don't. So that's a, that's a wonderful resource. And then we talked a little bit, too, about vaccines and uh, what what are the common vaccines that that as it, let's just talk about adults because we have our, our very set schedule with kids <laughs> a little bit more leeway with with adults there but with adults that can help prevent some of these respiratory infections. Well, I think the largest of these would would clearly be the influenza vaccine, which is a uh, an annual vaccine that uh, has multiple strains of the flu virus uh, where they try to predict which strains are going to be potentially causing the flu as it comes to the Western uh, hemisphere. And they formulate those flu vaccines once a year, and uh, we recommend getting those. Usually comes in September, October, November. Uh, We have a flu vaccine out and start administering those. Uh, The peak of our flu season tends to be uh, as winter starts in December and January, uh, and then peters out into the spring. Uh, and the flu vaccine itself uh, is variable in efficacy. There are years when it's a great match for the influenza strains that are circulating and years when it's not such a great match. Uh, but its efficacy at its low point is around 30% in preventing infection. And on a good year, it might be 80% in preventing infection. Uh, the good news is that when you get a flu vaccine, that generally you have uh, less, sometimes it prevents the disease altogether, Uh other times, it prevents the severity of the disease when you do get it, uh, and it also helps in reducing your uh, the transmissibility of the virus, so you can help protect other people around you uh, from getting the flu. Uh, so the flu vaccine itself, uh, while some years it's better than others, does a good job at protecting uh, other people in the community, and um, we use it exclusively, uh, extensively at the university. In fact, all of our employees are, are required now to take the influenza vaccine every year. The way you're describing that, it, it just sounds like insurance. I think so. It's, <laughs> it's certainly a great, uh, a great preventive uh, medication. And, uh, you know, the side effects from the medication are very small. It's, it's mainly that folks don't like having a, a sore shoulder or they're afraid of needles. But the, uh, it's a, it's a great vaccine and works, uh, works well. It's the best thing we've got going. The flu and pneumonia still cause, uh, are one of the leading causes of an infection deaths in the U.S. Uh, this is just one way that we can act to try to protect ourselves and protect others around us. And so, and you mentioned pneumonia too. So that, that's more so kids and then certain groups of adults. Sure. So there are certain groups of adults and, and particularly the elderly that are more likely to, need a pneumococcal vaccine to help prevent uh, certain types of pneumococcal infection, usually invasive types of pneumococcal infection. Uh, and and that, uh, that vaccine, there's actually two different formulations now that we're using in adult populations, uh, a, a polysaccharide version and then a conjugate version. Uh, but both of those vaccines work fairly well, and we recommend them in certain age populations and certain uh, people with certain health conditions as well. Uh, certainly in uh, my 
HIV population that I take care of in clinic, they all get the uh, both types of pneumococcal vaccine. Well, and we were actually talking about that in clinic this morning because we were out of one kind of them. Uh, And uh, so I suggested that the patient go to their pharmacy and get it because uh, most pharmacies these days do administer those vaccinations and and can bill your insurance directly for it. And so that's a wonderful, wonderful resource. It is. And the... uh the, the ability of pharmacists and pharmacies to do some of the procedures that you had to go to a healthcare provider to get, including vaccinations, has, has really expanded our reach uh, to the population of Mississippi because we don't always have healthcare providers that are readily available, but there are almost always pharmacies on every corner. That's and right. <laughs> a lot of those pharmacies are providing uh, our patients of, of all ages, uh, particularly. Uh, a fair amount of seniors now go to the pharmacy mm-hmm. to get their pr- mm-hmm. get their vaccinations. It's just easier for them to do that, and they're generally covered by Medicare. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's a wonderful resource. We've got it easily available. Go in and get your get your pneumonia shot while you're getting your your milk and your eggs and everything else, and it's just so so very convenient. And they can be all your insurance directly. So that's a wonderful resource. I'm so glad we can do that now. That's very different than than years ago when I worked in community pharmacy. So what recommendations would you have uh, before we leave today about, in general, antibiotic use? And, like, when to know, when, once again, when to know, when should I call my doctor? I, I think, you know, when you should call your doctor is uh, you should approach your uh, contacting your physician whenever you feel uncomfortable. And, and with we'll the, say, too, we'll say health care <laughs> provider. Yeah, health care <laughs> provider, your health care provider. Whenever you feel uncomfortable with the illness that you or a family member has, it's fine to contact your health care provider and see if you need to bring them in. But things that should make us more worried is when the patient is running a high fever, uh, whether they have uh, symptoms uh, where they are breathing more rapidly, uh, where they have a decrease in their mental status where they're not as alert as they usually are. They seem to be more somnolent, sleepy. Uh, when they're not taking uh, food and water like they should, uh, when they're less responsive in that way, certainly by the time that they are having difficulty breathing and turning blue, uh, it's uh, definitely time to get uh, them yeah. to, the, uh, <laughs> to the emergency room, not just the doctor. But, you know, the... The important thing to remember is that there's there's nothing there's nothing wrong with seeking uh, seeking uh, treatment at your healthcare provider. But if you do use the uh, resources that are available uh, online through good websites that give good information, like cdc.gov/getsmart, there is good information there about respiratory tract infections and things that you should look for. And and generally. Uh, if you can follow those things, uh, you'll go a long way to getting yourself healthier and, and avoiding the adverse events from inappropriate antibiotic use. Well, thank you, Dr. Farrell. Wonderful, useful information. I'll use that in dealing with some of my family members this week, this afternoon, probably. And thank you, Lauren, for your help with us today. Next week, we're going to be talking about mind matters, how to eat and be physically active to keep our mind from declining over the years. So Laura and I are going to be looking into those issues and be ready for next week. Please join us next week. Southern Revenue Healthy and Fit is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting, Think Radio, and is funded by a generous grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and from the members of the Foundation for Public Broadcasting in Mississippi. Today's show was engineered by Jay White. Thank you, Jay. Please join us next Monday at 11 for Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. And stay tuned. NPR's Here and Now is next. 
This forecast is underwritten by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Mississippi. Information on how to make good health a family affair is available at bcbsms.com. As it turns out, the Ridge of...